Good morning. Good morning. Um, if you have your Bibles, go with me to Ephesians 5. We'll be mostly in Ephesians 5, uh, at least kind of grounded there, if you will. As you know, our typical preaching is exposition. This will probably be one of the most topical sermons that we're going to do in this series. Um, so we're going to kind of be all over the place. I almost listed every passage in Renovate Us so that you could go read all 20 of them. But uh, that's, I, mean, I don't know if there's 20, I didn't count. There might be 20, but nevertheless, uh, we're going to be kind of rooted in Ephesians 5 and Psalm 90. It's kind of our couple of our kind of core texts here, but again, we'll be looking at multiple ones. Uh, if you saw on Facebook, I posted my pains of trying to cut the sermon down in length. So um, with that said, we're just going to rock and roll. And if you need to slow down my pace, then uh, re-listen to it and press pause a whole bunch of times. Okay? So here we come. We're going to wrap up our series on Habits of Grace today, and hopefully next week start just a real short series. We'd like to, in the fall, do a short series on, on the church, different aspects of the church, the, uh, the local church that is, and, and what that looks like, and different things that we value, and parts of our vision, and, and desires, and maybe things that we need to grow on as a church for this upcoming year. And then after that, then we'll finally get back into a book of the Bible, uh, my comfort place. This is not comfortable preaching for me. But nevertheless, I see such goodness in us taking a break sometimes to cover some other uh, topics and matters. So here, here we come to Ephesians 5, verse 15 and 16. It says this, Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. And then Psalm 90, verse 12, says this, So teach us to number our days, that we may get a heart of wisdom. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, as we try to tackle a very big topic with a very minimal amount of time this morning, Father, may at least there be seeds of holiness planted in our hearts that might be watered in the days ahead. Father, thank you for your goodness this morning and, and your graciousness. Father, please multiply our time and minimize my words. In Jesus' name, amen. The clock is always running and never to turn back. Every human being ever to walk this planet is subject to the never-ceasing, ever-passing of time. Time never stops rolling. You cannot press the pause button, right? I mean, if you have a DVR at home, which, I mean, I do, I enjoy. I would never get to watch TV if I couldn't, you know, use the DVR. They always play things at times that, you know, I'm wrangling kids and such, and we're not going to sit down and spend our whole evening in front of the TV. But I can press pause. You and I cannot press pause on the passing of time. Listen, you can treat time however you want to, and we're going to talk about different ways we treat time, but you can treat time however you want to, but there's nothing you can do to stop it from passing. It's out of our control. It should be a moment-by-moment -moment reminder of your lack of sovereignty and God's 
utter display of sovereignty. This God who is not limited by time, is not within the confines of time, but created time himself. Mathis said this, David Mathis said this, ignore the rush of time to your own peril, or walk the path of wisdom in stewarding your short and few days as gifts from God. As we talked about last week with the resource of money, the resource of time is to be used to move towards God's streams of grace. There's not this uh, neutral gear for time as it relates to moving towards God's streams of grace. Namely, right, his voice, having his ear, so his voice in his word, his voice through, or his ear through prayer, and the fellowship of the saints, those streams of grace, time, there's not a neutral. You either spend time to move closer to those things, or you spend time moving away from those things. Remember we talked about last week, where your treasure is, there your heart is. Where, where your money is, there your heart is. Well, where you spend your time, there your heart is too. How you spend your two primary resources of time and money directly impacts the extent to which you place yourself in God's streams of grace. Spend money and time to move towards them, or we spend money and time to move away from them. Listen, if you spend your time chasing, here's an example that's pertinent to today's topic. If you spend your time chasing after arranging the perfect schedule, then control of schedule is what you value. Not that it's wrong to value that, but it might be your chief value. But if you spend time chasing after deep fellowship and rich community, which is, is meant to be a stream of grace where God's blessing regularly flows, then that will be what you value. That is indeed telling you what you Value. Uh, many times we have to ask the question, do I value being close to God's streams of grace as close as I possibly can? Or do I value most earning goodness and graciousness my own way? I mean, that's, that's really the, the, our options. You see, how you spend God's resources, again, directly impacts how close to His streams of grace we're placing ourselves. Again, we can't make God give us grace. Then it ceases to be grace and it's just an exchange of goods. But he has promised that his grace regularly flows in these, particularly these three primary ways. His voice, his ear, and his body. So here's the question. How are you going to grow in hearing God's voice in the scriptures if you don't spend the resource of time to do it? So if you see, so here's the thing. So you have to ask: If I'm not spending the necessary the necessary resource of time to learn how to hear God's voice, to actually hear God's voice, then does it say what does it say about what I actually value? I would argue that if you're not spending the resource of time to learn and to hear God's voice, then you don't value that stream of grace. I mean, the question, and then you've got to ask the question, well, then what do I value instead? What are you holding up as a greater value than hearing God's voice? And, and that's just blasphemy. I mean, right? Any, any other thing is idolatry, is blasphemy, is ridiculous, is foolish 
is ignorant. I mean, it's all those bad things. It's ultimately sinful. You can hear my son. Maybe it's in the recording. That is Henry. How are you going to grow in community with others if you don't spend the time to do it? There's two extremes concerning time. I want to kind of get, paint this picture. Two extremes concerning time. And everybody kind of falls somewhere on this you know, continuum here. One is some are neglectful in their use of time. Maybe you put yourself in this category, and I, I, I doubt it. I mean, most of you are not going to put yourself in this category. You're going to put yourself in the next category, whether it's true or not. In this category, instead of making the best use of time, time is neglected. It's neglected like it's an endless resource. These are often the people who avoid doing hard things. Now again, I guarantee you no one in this room is going, that's me. I neglect time. Why? Because in our culture, in a second we're going to talk about in our culture, being busy is, is deemed as godliness. Like that's, that's the good thing. You've got to be busy. So no one's going to put yourself in this category. You put yourself in number two. But nevertheless, these are the people who often, if you watch yourself avoiding the the option of doing hard things, too much stress, we got to avoid all those things. You would probably consider this person lazy. But listen, this could also be people who neglect the use of time by doing the wrong things. Or maybe not doing the wrong things, but doing good things instead of the best things. I'm thinking of the person here who spends hours and hours planning a project but never actually executes the project. Or they spend an hour getting ready in the morning but can't spend 15 minutes reading their Bible. Is it, is it wrong to spend an hour getting ready? In the, no? But... Is it the best use of time? These people might look and feel busy, but in reality are still neglectful of time. So that's why I say you might feel busy, but are you neglecting time? And for most of us, it's not a matter of spending time doing good things versus bad things. It's doing bad things versus the best, or doing good things versus the best things. You see, the clock is arguably more precious than the dollar. Like what Donald Whitney said, if people threw away their money as thoughtlessly as they throw away their time, we would think them insane. Yet time is infinitely more precious than money because money can't buy time. I'm sure you can spend money in a way that saves time and makes you more efficient and able to do other things, but you can't buy more time. It's a resource that once it's spent, it's gone. Once the next hour is gone. How you, listen, how you spend the next hour is of infinite value, and it will never come back to you again. It's amazing. I, I've watched people pinch over this penny or this penny, obsessing over having the best deal 
and then turn around and waste hours of their life in front of a television. I gotta save this penny. I gotta get this deal. I gotta get this rebate. I gotta get this clearance. I got to save this money on gas. And then spend hours wasting away in front of a television. Or not realizing the hours spent to save a buck. I have a funny story. A neighbor of mine came to me. I debated on sharing the story. I'm going to go ahead and share it. A neighbor came to me, not, uh, not Doug and Nikki, for the record, uh, a different neighbor, came to me and said, my, my, my wife's out of town, and will you go help me get uh, gas? In, my, in the car. I want to get both gas. And, and the short of the story is this, because I don't have much time, uh, is uh, it saved a bunch of Kroger fuel points. A bunch of Kroger, you know, does the whole thing, you know, where you go buy the gift cards and use that to go out and you get double, triple, quadruple, whatever, uh, you know, the system is. And it's, it's legit, whatever. So we, we, he goes, can you go with me so that I can use my points to fill up both vehicles? Yes, I'll go. Uh, and I, listen, I was happy to go. I was happy to go and serve money. I genuinely was. Um, but afterwards, I did the math, right? I did the math. This was what I do. Um, he saved, now, now get it, this was a lot of money. I mean, I get 70 cents on a gallon across two vehicles. Now, where his vehicle that I drove there, total savings was $6. Well, now a gallon of tank, a partial tank of gas, that, that's great. It took me about 40 minutes to go do this with him for $6. 40 minutes for $6. So let's, let's, let's just round down to a half an hour. That's $12 an hour. Now for some people, $12 an hour is a worthy investment of time. For some people, it's not a worthy investment of time. But nevertheless, here's my point. It's a matter of time. And that was a half hour, 40 minutes. That's not counting all the extra trips to go get the gift cards for the fuel points so that you can do all that. That's not counting all that time. And if you split that in two because it was two vehicles, right? You can follow me here. You don't have to do all the math in your head right now, but you get the point. Now, it was worth it for me, not for the $6. It was worth it for me for the investment and the care for my neighbor. But it was $6 for a half an hour. And I know some of you are like, some of your kids are like, oh, dude, I would do anything that took me half an hour to get six bucks. That'd be fantastic. And for you, it's a good, worthy use of your time. But here's my point. What was the thoughtfulness that went into that expenditure of time? For some people, it's justifiable. For other people, we, we, we spend time in ways that we don't realize we're wasting time. Again, you know, racking up all those points for some, and I do legitimately mean might be the best use of time but it may not be and here's the danger here's the danger when it comes to the use of time when it really when it comes to anything but particularly the use of time it's really easy for us to put ourselves in this little time bubble and justify everything inside it well i'm busy and i'm righteous in my busyness and how I'm spending my time towards this busyness. 
But let's be honest. Let's just really be honest for a second. Isn't it real easy to convince yourself that the way you're spending God's time is good, wise, and righteous? I mean, how many times do you spend time going, yeah, I don't, I don't think this is the best use of time. I mean, unless someone else is making you do it, right? Then you're like, I don't think this is the best use of time. And I mean, like, no, we go in having good justification for why we're doing what we're doing. I'm going to spend this next hour, I'm, let me be back, I'm going to spend this next three hours on the TV because, because I deserve it. I've worked all day, it's been a hard week, I've put up with the kids, I'm going to do, I mean, listen, I'm giving you an example from my own life. Or, you know, I'm going to go spend an hour doing that. You know, we have justification. You don't aimlessly walk into things. You, you do it. You want to work all those extra hours because you have justification for it. It just might not be good justification. I mean, what if someone came along and said, you know, what you're doing is not good. I mean, it's good, but it's not best. And here's why. How would you respond I mean, most of us would be like, well, you don't know my life. You don't know what I need to do and what I need to get done and what I got going on over here and how busy I am doing this, and, right? Like, or what if someone came along and said, you know, you're really not that busy. You're not as busy as you think you are. You talk about your busy, you run around stressed, you're really not that busy. I, seriously, what if someone came to you and said that? If you think you're busy and someone came to you and said, you know, you actually have time. You're just wasting it doing this or wasting it doing that. How would you respond? Listen, 99% of us would freak out, right? It's like, it's like money. Well, what do you mean I can't go buy that shirt that that's a waste of money? Or what do you mean I'm not being generous and I'm greedy? Like we would freak out. Trust me, I've said this to people. They freak out. It's been said to me. And I freak out. So it's easy for us to get in this little bubble and justify everything inside it. Category two, others are consumed by their calendar. Others are consumed by their calendar. Again, if you didn't put yourself in the first category, I guarantee you put yourself in the second category, and most of you are, are going to put yourself in the second category, even though many of you need to be in the first category. You get my point. Others are consumed by the calendar. In our culture, busyness equals godliness. In the church culture, even in this church culture, I cannot stand it, but busyness equals godliness. Why else, why else would we tout our busyness? Well, oh, you know, I'm just so busy. Oh, I'm just so worn out from my schedule. Like, why, why would we do that? Because we think it makes us look righteous. Like, it makes me look godly and good. When I hear, so, just so that you know, and no one's ever going to say this to me again, which is awesome. Not really because then you're going to start hiding it. So still reveal your sinfulness that would be helpful so that I can help you through it. But when I hear people say, well, I'm so busy, what they should be saying is, I'm consumed by my calendar. Pastor, would you please help me? When I hear someone say, I'm so busy, what I say is, what I'm thinking in my mind is, you need to go repent, probably. Now, there are seasons where things come into our life that are out of our control. I get that. There are things that come in that you just have no control over, and it's like, oh my gosh, I am swamped. I'm busy. I'm barely hanging on, right? Like, um, the past three kids have felt that way for us. 
Um, right? Kid comes in, and for like nine months, we're just trying to figure out how to do the new swimming, you know, routine that we got to do. And eventually, we kind of come out, usually. Uh, I feel like we're kind of getting there with Winnie now. But listen, 99% of the time, you and I make choices that get us into the busyness that we're in. Or we don't make choices and we let life happen to us that puts us in the position that we're in. Busyness is not godliness. And people who are consumed by their calendar, oftentimes the root sin of being consumed by your calendar is something like anxiety, selfishness, pride, arrogance. Proverbs 21.1 says this, Do not boast about tomorrow, for you do not know what a day may bring. So this is, this is someone talking to someone who obsesses over plans and obsesses over making a schedule. Now, we do that sometimes because in arrogance, we think we can plan and control every detail. Every detail. So I'm going to plan this intricate plan thinking in arrogance that I can control every aspect of it. What's interesting, just as an observation, is that many of these people that I know who live a life like this rarely ever get anything done on their actual schedule. They certainly never get it all done. Quoting someone, the hands of the clock are ever in the hands of God. It is arrogant to plan without planning for God. Listen, if you get joyless, if your joy flees you because your schedule got jacked up, you arrogantly thought you could plan and control your universe. Quoting again, the God of time management will fail us quickly in the place of Christ and His providence and His prerogatives. It will fail us over and over and over again. These are often the people who are so busy they're never available, or they fill their schedule anxiously having to fill every spot. I've got to be doing this. They plan, plan, plan. They worship productivity. And oftentimes people in this category have fallen into the trap of our current culture. Our current culture says this, you must guard your sacred schedule particularly from the invasions of others' needs and priorities. It's about me and what I got to get done. If you happen to be a part of my need to get done list, then you get something from me. Otherwise, I anything that presses into my schedule, anybody here feel that way? I, I got my schedule for the day, and when someone else's needs, someone else's situation, something presses in on that, like you just go, <gasps> anxiety, tension, frustration, anger. No, I gotta keep my schedule. Or you give to those needs, but you do it begrudgingly and without joy. Well, all right, well, that's what my kid needs right now, so I guess I'll go take care of it. I was driving down the road and had to stop. We were on a four-hour trip home yesterday, and I 
had to stop twice to give spankings. On the side of the highway to give spankings. And uh, right, what's going through my mind? It's a four-hour trip. I want to get home. You're invading my schedule, man. Our culture says protect your schedule. But either way, either category, whether you, where you, wherever you fit on this continuum, even when we use time unwisely and dishonorably, do you realize that just like the resource of time or the resource of money, the principle of God blowing it away still is applicable? So in uh, in the story we gave last week, where they're spending their what? They're spending time and money to build their houses, and they leave the house of God in ruins. And what happens? God blows it away. He blows their resources away. He particularly blows their crops away and the resources that come from it. The same thing is true when we misuse God's time. I mean, many of you are experiencing the consequences of this, and maybe you realize that maybe you don't. In your marriage with your children, in your spiritual lives. You've spent so much time on all the not best things and now it just seems like time is fleeting. That's probably because God is blowing it away as a part of the consequence for the way you've chosen to spend your time. Listen, here's an example. Do you spend your time preparing your heart before the Lord, enjoying His graces before you go try to parent your child? Could it be that God just blows away those opportunities to be Jesus to your children because you have little interest in Jesus yourself? And he blows that time away. And then they get to be older teenagers. They get out of the house and you're going, what happened? You spent so much time building your own house while you let the house of your children you let the house of your church, you let the house of this lost person lie in ruins. We need to hear now more than ever, 1 Corinthians 6, 19-20, or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. Glorify God with your time. What's your body do? What's your body in? What is it constrained within? Time. That's not the only point of this passage. There's things like caring for your body and and stewarding nutrition and things like that. But there's also time. Your body is strapped within the continuum of time. Your hand moves this way. It took a second to move your hand that way. Your body is within time. And he says to glorify God with your body. Glorify God with your time. Why do we ask this question? Why do we ask this question? What is permissible for me? You ever ask that question? I mean, maybe use different words like, is this okay for me to do? Is this permissible to me? I was reading a good bit of Piper's book, Don't Waste Your Life, this past week. And he asked this question. Why do we ask the question, what is permissible? 
I mean, think about that. It's like, the, it's, it's like the training wheels of tithing we talked about last week. The 10% tithe of the Old Testament being a starting place, being like training wheels. And when you move on from that, then take the training wheels off. What is permissible is almost like training wheels. What has God's law said that is acceptable for my life? What are my duties? What is the bare minimum for walking in faithfulness? But let me ask you a question. What kind of life is that? What kind of life is the life that is always asking the question of God, what is permissible? That's, listen to me church, that's how a life lives in response to the law. But how should a life be lived in response to the grace of the gospel of Jesus Christ? What does that life look like? Piper said, of this question, what is permissible? He said, it felt almost disgusting to me. He said, I don't want a minimal life. And I feel like most of us wonder, myself included, we wander around going, is this permissible or is this not? All the while living nothing but a minimal life. What's the bare minimum for faithfulness to God? That's what a life looks like that responds to the law. But a life, what would it look like for a life that says grace upon grace has been given to me. Now what glory of my God can I display today? What greatness of my God can I show in reality to someone else today? That's a life worth living. For the remainder of our time, I want to give us really some big themes of Scripture that will help you live a life in response, not to the law, but to the grace and glory of God. So how to live a life in response to God's glory and grace. And certainly, I would encourage you, go, go read the book, Don't Waste Your Life, by John Piper. It's so encouraging to me this week and convicting and helpful helpful for this today. First thing is this, live by a single passion. The beauty of Christ, our joy. You want to spend time wisely? You want to steward time well? Live by a single passion. The beauty of Christ, our joy. Listen, we all live by a passion. Whether you realize it or not, I hear people say, well, I'm not that emotional, I'm not that feely at all. Listen, we all live by passion for one thing or the other, whether we show it in extreme emotionalism or any variation thereof. We all live by passion, just usually the wrong ones. 1 Corinthians 10.31, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the what? The glory of God. How do you do all to the glory of God? You have to have passion for the glory of God. Matthew 22, verse 37 through 38 says this, And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. He goes on to talk about love your neighbor. But this is the first and great commandment, to love God with everything. What is he saying? To have passion for God. God's two aims in history, two primary aims in history. 
One is to fully display His glory. To make His glory known. Number two, His second aim in all of history is that His people would delight in Him with all their heart, with all their soul, with all their mind, with all their strength. That is God's two big aims in all of history. What's he saying? You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul. What's he saying? You must delight in God. You must have passion for God. You must enjoy Him supremely. And if you connect those two dots, that's how we bring glory to God. That's the life that doesn't just live with what's permissible, but the life that spends time for His glory. It's the heart that's in love with His glory, that's in love with Him and displaying His glory. I have to read to you a quote from Jonathan Edwards. I'm going to read it a little slow, but this is so helpful. So hang with me on each word. The glory of God does not consist merely in the creature's perceiving his perfections. For the creature may perceive the power and wisdom of God and yet take no delight in it, but actually abhor it. Those creatures that so do don't glorify God, nor, he goes on to the next thought, nor doth the glory of God consist especially in speaking of his perfections. For words avail not any otherwise than as they express the sentiment of the mind. So they can be nothing more than just a sentiment of our mental capacities, is what he said. This glory of God, therefore, consists in the creatures admiring and rejoicing and exulting in the manifestations of His beauty and excellency. The essence of of glorifying God consists, therefore, in the creature's rejoicing in God's manifestations of His beauty, which is the joy and happiness we speak of. So we see it comes to this at last, that the end of the creation is that God may communicate happiness to the creature, For if God created the world that He may be glorified in the creature, He created it that they might rejoice in His glory. He says, for we have shown that they are the same, meaning displaying God's glory by enjoying His glory is one and the same thing. And what he's saying is that you cannot speak of God's glory in an honoring way without enjoying His glory, and you can't have some mental assent to his glory and and actually be displaying his glory there's this affection this enjoying of his glory that is necessary for actually glorifying him by reflecting his glory what is life all about if we're going to talk about time what is life all about What is time all about? Why do I get time and why do I spend time? Why am I here? Am I supposed to pursue being happy? Am I supposed to use time to glorify God? Listen, here's the, the, in the places that I grew up, many who seemed to glorify God didn't seem to be very happy. 
And many who seemed to be very happy didn't seem to be glorifying God very much. It's true around us. Man, I wish I could be as happy as them. They're doing all these things. Listen, God's purpose for my life and for yours is that we have a passion for God's glory and that we have a passion for our joy in that glory and that these two are one passion. That's one thing. Do you want to know what a wasted life looks like? you want to know what it looks like to waste God's time? It's not your time, right? It's God's time. You want to know what it looks like to waste it? I'm going to quote Piper here. God created me and you to live with a single, all-embracing, all-transforming passion, namely, a passion to glorify God by enjoying and displaying His supreme excellence in all the spheres of life. Enjoying and displaying are both crucial. Okay, Follow. Enjoying and displaying are both crucial. If we try to display the excellence of God without joy in it, we will display a shell of hypocrisy and create scorn or legalism. That's where most of us grew up. But if we claim to enjoy His excellence and do not display it for others to see and admire, we deceive ourselves because the mark of God-enthralled joy is to overflow and expand by extending itself into the hearts of others. The wasted life is the life without a passion for the supremacy of God in all things for the joy of all peoples. That's how we to spend our time. We should just pray and end. And I would end well on time. Listen, we waste our lives when we do not pray and think and dream and plan and work toward magnifying God in all spheres of life. When you sit down to make your schedule for the day, to plan your schedule for the year, for the week, whatever it is, the first thought must be, how can I think and dream and work every ounce of my time to show God to be as great as He actually is? God created us for this. And any use of time outside of that will ultimately leave you empty. Listen, our job is not to make God more great than He is, but to display His beauty and infinite worth that it already is. But let me ask you this question. Does that make you feel used? Does that idea make you feel used? Well, I'm here to serve all of my time for God's glory. Does that make me feel used? In our culture, the idea of love, like used instead of feeling loved, that's the question. In our culture, love is to be made much of. That's how we define love in our cultures. To, to, I feel loved when I've made much of, when, when you help me see my own loveliness. We are taught in a thousand ways that love means increasing someone else's self-esteem. 
Love is helping that person to feel good about themselves. But that's not the way the Bible means, or what the Bible means by the love of God. Love is not just helping someone think highly of themselves. Love is doing what is best for someone always, no matter whether they like it or not. Love is helping and doing what's best for somebody else. And listen, making self the object of our highest affections, meaning centering life around making me feel more lovely, is not what's best for us. We were made to see and savor God and savoring Him to be supremely satisfied, Piper said, and thus spread in all the world the worth of His presence. Listen, the greatest good for us, if we're going to, again, if we're talking about time, the greatest good for us is not to see and savor our own selves and our own accomplishments. It's to see and savor God. Do you spend time to do that? Not just in a devotion time. I'm saying when you're driving to work, when you're parenting your kids, when you're conversing with your wife across the dinner table, when you're choosing well, how much time to spend at work, are you seeking to see and savor God, to be satisfied in Him? And so loving people means pointing them to this all-satisfying God. Let me quote, Love is showing a dying soul the life-giving beauty of the glory of God especially the grace of this God. Do you spend time for that purpose? Anything else is a waste of time. Not to aim to show God for who He is is to not love others because God is what we need most deeply. Wasting our lives. Listen, you can't begin to even answer the question or get at the problem of spending time well until your affections are spent well. And the thing is, here's the deal. Our affections, God has to turn them on. We are, we are at His mercy. Because our affections, our affections are prone to wander, Right? But what we can do is we can choose to place ourselves in the streams where He can ignite those affections. You can choose to spend time doing the TV versus time to spend time in your Word. You can choose those things. And God's the one that ignites those affections therein. Number two, boast only in the cross. Just similar to the first one, but gives a little more of a handle grips to grab a hold of here, boast only in the cross. 1 Corinthians 2.2, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified, Paul says. To know nothing among you except Christ and Him crucified. One single focus, the cross of Jesus Christ. Other than Jesus Himself, I don't know that we have another greater example of single-mindedness in the entire scriptures like that of the Apostle Paul. Acts 20, 24, But I do not account my life of any value, nor is precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel. What's he talking about? To the cross. 
that shows the grace of God. The single-mindedness. So let me ask you this question. What is the one passion in your life that makes everything else look like rubbish in comparison? What do you say, what are you passionate about? If I could just have that, my day would be good. Is it your financial security? Is it having power over your schedule or others? Is it having power to make situations go your way? Is it acquiring the state of mind where life is easy and stress-free? What is it? What is that passion that drives you? That's going to determine how you choose to spend time. Listen, we magnify God's worth the most when the cross becomes our only boast. We magnify God's worth the most when the cross becomes our only boast. Glory can only be seen and savored by sinners through the glory of the cross. I'm going to explain what I mean by that. That's kind of cliche-ish. If we are to make much of God, then what He did and what He is in Christ must be our only boast. Galatians 6.14 But far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. A single goal for life, a single passion, only boast in the cross. What do you mean by boast in the cross? To exalt or to rejoice in the cross. To let this be your single passion, your single boast, your single joy and exaltation. That the cross, the glory of God displayed in the broken body of Jesus on my behalf, to rescue me and to display God's great glory. That is what I boast in. Paul is saying the only joy of your life must be the cross of Christ. You ask the question, is he serious? Like, really? I can't have joys in anything else. I can't have joy in my kids. I can't have joy in it. In a sense, yeah, that's what he's saying. I came to know nothing among you except Jesus and Him crucified. When you, when you go to parent your kids, child, I'm coming to you to know nothing but Jesus and Jesus crucified. What's that look like? Is he serious? I mean, Paul says to rejoice in other things, right? To boast in the glory of God in, in other ways. What's he saying? Here's what I believe Paul is saying. He means that all other boasting is ultimately and must ultimately be boasting in the cross. Let me explain. We get to boast in the hope of future glory, right? The hope of future heaven, this place where sin is no more. We have to boast that we have hope in that coming. But that boasting must also be a boasting in the cross because the cross is what made that possible. We boast in trials, not because they're easy, but because we know we will make them through or make it through them. We boast in that because it brings 
hope, like we have a hope, but that hope in trials is only made possible by the cross. You only have a hope to survive whatever you're going through because of the cross. We boast in our weakness only because it displays the power of the cross. Why or how is this the case? Because for redeemed sinners, hear me, for redeemed sinners, every good thing, indeed every bad thing even, that God turns for good was obtained for us by the cross. Everything. Apart from the death of Christ, sinners get nothing but judgment and condemnation. That's what you have a right to apart from the cross of Christ. All the grace in His streams that you enjoy were purchased by the red hot blood dripping from the cross. Paid for. We boast in nothing but the cross. Let me give you some practical help before we move on to number three. Listen, what we're talking about here is this complete reorienting our hearts, this reorientation of our worship, of our affections, of how we're going to think about our day. Listen, you're not going to naturally get up in the mornings and think, let me boast only in the cross today. I guarantee most of us in this room are going to need a training wheel of some sort. You need some kind of structure. Because listen, if you don't happen to your day, your day's going to happen to you. You've got to do something. We have, we have to just beat our bodies, beat our flesh, right? Paul talks about. We must set up training wheels. Like David Mathis points out, we should make the most of our mornings. I'm not going to go through these passages, but read Psalm 5 3, Psalm 30, verse 5, 46, verse 5. Mark 1, verse 35. If you want those verses, you can ask me later. These examples where they're making the most of their mornings. Listen, I get it. You may not get to do your best studying. Like, I'm going to engulf this whole passage of, and I'm going to study and commentary it out, and I'm going to do a word, you know, all this stuff. And you may, not, that may, you may not have time to do that in the morning before you go to work. But you must make time to reorient, to, to, to change the direction of your heart and set the pace of your heart for the day. Otherwise, the day is going to happen. How we regularly invest our mornings can be telling. How many of us have found it truth that where our morning is, there our heart will be also, and there it will remain for the rest of the day. Matthew said, when our top priority each day is reorienting toward Jesus and hearing his voice in the scriptures, we'll be more likely to create space for that early and less likely to leave it to chance that something won't drown it out later in the day. And that's what happens for most of us, right? We get up, our heart's already oriented in the wrong direction. And we go, okay, I'm going to spend time with God later. I'm going to read. I'm going to hear His voice. I'm going to pray. I'm going to do that later in the day. It's going to be at this time or whatever. And then the day happens. But you already started off on the wrong foot. 
and then it just gets drowned out. Make the most of your mornings. Number three, the goal of life. The goal of life. Back to how am I going to spend time wisely? How am I going to respond not just to the law, even as valuable and as training wheels, all that stuff that that is, but how do I respond to the gospel of grace? One, the goal of life is gladly making others glad in God. Gladly making others glad in God. Gladly making others glad in God. The most practical way we show everything we have been talking about thus far is by using God's time to make others glad in God. Joy in God overflows in glad-hearted mercy to people because joy in the merciful God cannot be merciless. Quoting Piper. Listen. Joy in the mercy of God will love being merciful. If you're not merciful, then you have no joy in the mercy of God. Joy in the forgiveness of God will love forgiving others. Joy in the graciousness of God will love being gracious. Joy in the generosity of God will love being generous. Joy in the dying of self for the good of others will love dying to self for the gladness of others. Giving of time, sacrificing of yourself, finding creative and sacrificial ways to help give others everlasting and ever-increasing joy in God. That is how we should spend our time. But it's not your duty. You're not going to do this if it's just your duty. It must be your joy. He has to set you free from sin He has set you free from sin and brought you to sit before the throne as His child. The cross washed you clean to be in His presence. Wouldn't you want to take others there too? Let me quote, By gladly pursuing the gladness of others in God, even at the cost of our lives, we love them and honor God. This is the opposite of a wasted life. But listen, how often do we spend time as it relates only to us? We spend time only as it relates to us. How often, or how will this make me feel? How does this fit into my schedule? When can I just get to the next thing? I mean, don't you understand the slavery of that kind of living? You weren't washed in the blood and made joyful in the Lord to live for yourself. So we should, we've got to repent. We must repent. We were washed by the blood. Not for a whole life of living for ourselves. We're set free to live for God and the gladness of others in the same way God has made you glad in Him. Some practical help. Our calling in its truest and deepest sense is this. How God has prepared us prepared for us without particular abilities in a certain season of life to regularly expend time and energy 
for the good of others. But not just, right, not just to put food on their table, although that's important too, and not just to stand up for this right, although that's important too, but to help them be glad in God. That's how we're to expend our time. So the question is, is what I'm doing aimed at that ultimately? Listen, but on the other hand, knowing our giftings and attending to our priorities and tackling them, Mathis says here, tackling them first thing in the morning also unleashes us to be reactive as the day unfolds. Able to respond to the unplanned needs of others, whether big or small, obvious or subtle. I think it's some good practical help. Tend to the big things in the morning. Get those done because, listen, I can tell you this ministry-wise, it's so true. Like, I got to get in there. I got to get my sermon and work on it hard. Because it's, it's like when the rest of the church begins to wake up as the afternoon unfolds. Like, things start happening. And if I have not knocked out my big things in the morning, then it just gets blown up in the afternoon. Now, I know some of you are like, oh, I'm going to get you in the morning. No, 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 no. Wait till the afternoon, please. Re- re- just a reminder, Acts 20, verse 35. We are more blessed to give than to receive. How much time do you spend on yourself? The greatest joys come not from time squandered, hoarded, or selfishly spent, but from self-sacrificial love for the others to the glory of God. When we pour out our time and energy for the good of others and find our joy in theirs. Now, I, I feel like it would be really helpful at this moment to say, particularly to stay-at-home moms. You are giving of your life for your kids in in a unique way. And not, not like, right, there's different seasons and different lives, but like you're giving and you're giving and you're giving. Let me give you just a little bit of a caution. As we're giving and giving to our kids, and this can happen even beyond stay-at-home moms. It's just magnified in that context. If we're not careful, we can give and give and give to our kids that they wind up thinking that the world revolves around them. If we're not careful. So it must be the case that when we our giving of ourselves to them, that somehow in that it looks like leading them to give to others. That a part of my giving to them is actually moving them into others' lives. And I would say the primary place for that is in the body of Christ, but not limited to the body of Christ. You're giving of yourselves, and it's sacrificial, and it looks like Oh great, I'm doing all of I'm doing this. I am dying to myself and giving myself and praise God for that. Be careful. Be careful because that can have an unintended consequence. I know that none of you would ever want that for your kids. Move towards them. Again, it's not just for stay-at-home parents, moms, but for all of us. We're dying to our kids, dying to our spouse. Make sure that it's not doing it in such a way that it makes them feel like the center of the universe because they're not. 
Your classmates are not the center of the universe. God is. Your children don't need any help thinking they're the center of the universe. God is. Help them see that by giving themselves to other people as well. Lastly, live to prove that he is worth more than life. Live to prove that he is worth more than life. Matthew 16, 25 through 26. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? You know how we spend most of our time trying to save our lives, trying to secure for us the life we want to have. Most of our lives, we are severely risk adverse. We, which risk is what? Simply putting yourself in a position where you stand to lose something you value. But what Jesus is saying is if you're not willing to lose it all because you supremely value me, then you will forfeit your entire soul. You might gain a few years on this earth, but you will forfeit your soul for eternity. I mean, Jesus, right, is the ultimate example of laying down your life for the gladness of others, right? It's the perfect example of that. And he says, you got to forfeit your life to follow me. If you don't, you will lose your soul So what goals do you have, even with your finances? What goals do you have with your time? Let me ask you this. Why don't people ask you about your hope? Why don't people ask you? I mean, I'm making an assumption there, right? Why don't people ask you about your hope? My guess is this. Because we spend time and money as though our hope is in the same things as the world. So they already know what the answer is to what is your hope? Because for many of us, it's the same answer as theirs. Quoting, our lives don't look like they are on the Calvary road, stripped down for sacrificial love, serving others with the sweet assurance that we don't need to be rewarded in this life. Our reward is great in heaven. you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. If we believed this more deeply, others might see the worth of God and find in Him their gladness. You spend time that way. Like, Listen, follower of Jesus, you don't need your reward here. Whatever you're trying to spend your time to get for yourself, you don't need that. You don't need that tomorrow. You don't need it at the end of the day. You don't need it at the end of this hour. You don't need it at the end of this conversation with your child or with your coworker. Whatever you're trying to get, whether it's ease in life or it's power and influence or it's a protection of your schedule, you don't need that reward. Your reward is great in heaven. And if you believed it, you would let this other stuff go, die to self, and live for the glory of God. 
Don't you know that you don't need to spend time to make yourself happy in the things of this world? All it is is slavery and entrapment. Let me end with this prayer for us. Quoting, Would God withhold from us a life of joyful love and mercy and sacrifice that magnifies Christ and makes people glad in God? I plead with you as I pray for myself. Set your face like flint to join Jesus on the Calvary Road. And let me insert, with your time. Let us go to Him outside the camp and bear the reproach He endured. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. And when they see our sacrificial love radiant with joy, will they not say, Christ is great? Let me pray for us. Father, as we partake in communion, Father, may, may we, as this prayer says, set our face like flint to join Jesus on the road to the cross. Father, we have no lasting city here. All the things we're trying to spend our time to accomplish that are outside of your glory and the gladness of others in that glory, all of those things will not last. The time we spend with friendships, in friendships that are not motivated by, not aimed at the glory of God and making each other glad in the glory of God. Those friendships, those, they, will, they are fleeting. They will waste away with this world. But those friendships, those times we spend helping each other see the glory of our God, those will last forever. But however we're spending our time each and every day, may you show us our frailty in our own abilities to spend that time well. Humble us. Show us our need to behold the glory of our God and then spend time out of that beholding your glory. Help us, Father. Help us see that whatever we're trying to spend our time to grab a hold of, if it's anything other than you, we're wasting your time and ours. Let us behold your glory, Father. Let us spend our time like we do. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. Let me give you a few instructions here. You're welcome to remain in your seats and 
enjoy and reflect on the words as we partake in communion together. I to give you a couple warnings that come from scriptures, if from the scripture, if you have an unrepentant heart, what I mean by that is if you're not a follower of Jesus, that that you just watch and and take note of a people who recognize the importance of the shed blood of Jesus for their sins. But I don't just mean if you're not a follower of Jesus, but if you're a follower of Jesus and you have sin that you're harboring, that you're not repentant of, that, that you should not take as well. But I would encourage you, I would encourage both of those groups of people, repent now. What are you waiting on? Forgiveness is yours because of the blood of Jesus. Have faith. Ask God to show you mercy. We all in desperate need of His mercy. And for those of you who are followers of Jesus, spend your time, like this partaking of communion is a worthy spending of time. It's a worthy spending of time. You know what this is to remind you of? Is that the things you're spending your time trying to get other than enjoying the glory of God is a waste. Indeed, it's sinful, but he paid the price. And this reminds us that he secured our eternal hope. This is the way we boast only in the cross of Jesus Christ. When we partake together, we say to ourselves, we say to each other, we say to the world that all the good that has become ours by God's gracious hand was paid for because we deserved the judgment and condemnation that he received on our behalf. Amen? Amen. You're welcome to stay in your seats, even sit until Greg will ask you guys to stand in time and, and you make your way up just as you feel ready. Spend some time in prayer and reflection and then make your way up.